right, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to grab them and turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. We are continuing today in our thread series, Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. And I got to tell you, uh, the continuation of this series almost didn't happen. Yesterday, I woke up and I was uh, just looking over my sermon and decided, you know what, I don't want to look over it here in the office. I'm going to walk across the house to the living room and watch some football while I look over this sermon. And somehow on the way from my office to the living room, something happened on my computer. I don't know if I pushed a button. I don't know what happened. But when I opened it back up, I had a choice before me. Do I restart the computer or do I restore the computer? And I thought, well, I know I've saved this sermon. And so I just restarted it, thinking that'd get there faster. And when I opened up my sermon, I had three words, intro, Isaiah 53, and that's it. And uh, my day got really bad. And I cried, and I went back to the refrigerator and started eating my feelings with the leftovers from Thanksgiving. <laughs> And then I got after it. So, uh, you know, spoiler alert, if, if the sermon's bad, I'm blaming it on that, all right? Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, now, beginning next week, we will continue in this series in a special edition, uh, Christmas edition of The Thread. And what we're going to look at over the next three weeks is how Jesus fulfills the role of prophet, priest, and king. And this is going to be our Christmas series of Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. I think it'll be a great series leading up to Christmas. But today it's Isaiah 53. The title of the message is one that was first termed by the church historian, early church father, Augustine. He called the book of Isaiah, and this is the title of the message, the fifth gospel. John Calvin wrote a number of sermons on Isaiah 53 that he called the gospel according to Isaiah. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he taught and thought that every Christian should have Isaiah chapter 53 memorized. It's been referred to as the crown jewel, the pinnac, pinnacle of messianic prophecy. Spurgeon uh, wrote a sermon that he entitled Man of Sorrows based off of Isaiah 53. And listen to what he said. This is one of the chapters that lie at the very heart of the scriptures. It is the very holy of holies of divine writ. Let us therefore put off our shoes from our feet for the place whereon we stand, especially holy ground. The 53rd of Isaiah is a Bible in miniature. It is the condensed essence of the gospel. Now the word gospel means good news. And it's probably articulated most clearly in Paul's writing in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 and 4, where he wrote this New Testament letter to this church, and he said, for I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received. And then he gives essentially a definition of the gospel. This is the gospel in a nutshell, the good news, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the gospel, and it's good news because within this message that by faith in Jesus, who died and was buried and was raised to life, someone can have their sins forgiven, and they can be made right 
with God. And so this is the gospel. This is the good news that is meant to be shared and declared. And so Isaiah can rightly be referred to as the fifth gospel because right here in the 53rd chapter, reread of the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, get this, seven centuries before it would ever take place. And so let's look together. We'll break this passage up into three easily digestible sections. We'll see in the passage of Scripture the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. Let's look first at the incarnation. Now today, if you follow the Christian church liturgical calendar, marks the first day of Advent. Starts on the first Sunday, goes four Sundays leading up to Christmas. And it's a time where followers of Jesus are meant to set aside time to specifically prepare their heart and prepare their mind for what it means that the Messiah, the Christ, has finally arrived to earth. And I'd really encourage you, if you don't have an Advent devotional or you don't have an Advent daily Bible reading program, I would encourage you to Google them. There's literally hundreds of thousands of them out there. One practice that I like to do personally is to start in the gospel accounts and I'll just read the birth narrative a little bit every single day as I go through this season of the year, just preparing my own heart for the arrival of Jesus, reflecting on the meaning of Christ, the incarnation, God in the flesh, Jesus coming to earth. It's the greatest miracle in all of the Bible. Now, some people will say, well, isn't the resurrection the greatest miracle? Well, the resurrection doesn't happen if there's not first an incarnation. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Miracles, he called it the grand miracle. And listen to what he writes about the incarnation. The central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. God incarnate, God in flesh. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. It was the central event in the history of the earth, the very thing that the whole story has been about. And we see this grand miracle in the first couple of verses of Isaiah 53. Let's look at it together. Starting in verse 1, the Bible says this, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. This passage opens up with two questions, two questions that need answering. The first is verse one, who has believed what he has heard from us? Isaiah starts this message of prophecy off in utter amazement that God would give him this message to proclaim. And what is the message that he is proclaiming? You read Isaiah, and as a whole, Isaiah is prophesying about what is referred to as the servant of the Lord who is to come. We know this is the Messiah, the anointed one. And we read of this servant over and over in Isaiah's prophecy. The servant is this Messiah-like figure who will come and he will rule and reign, and he will ultimately restore and deliver God's people from Various nations that have overtaken them, exiled them, or attempted to destroy them. We read about this servant's birth in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. This is always a good passage to read this time of the year as we march into Christmas. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For to us a child is born. He's talking about this servant figure, this Messiah. 
A son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end in the throne of David and over his kingdom. We're reading about his rule and reign here. He will establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so it's this servant that the people of Israel, God's people, hang all of their hopes upon. It's this person that they are looking to that will one day be born and he will rule with righteousness and justice. They are looking to him and looking for him. And regardless of what the nation is going through at the time, regardless of what their present circumstances are, regardless of the religious turmoil or the political turmoil they find themselves in, they know God has promised a servant to come. Only here in Isaiah chapter 53 and some of the verses that preceded in Isaiah chapter 52, we see that the servant will be very different from what they could have ever imagined. In fact, if you look back at Isaiah 52, verse 13 and 14, it speaks of this servant who will be marred beyond human semblance. We'll see the same type of language in verses 3 through 9 here in Isaiah chapter 53. And it appears as you read about this servant that he's going to be rejected. He's going to be treated harshly. If you've ever heard the term suffering servant, this is where it comes from. Man of sorrows. Right here, Isaiah chapter 53. What does all this mean? Isaiah says, who has believed What they are hearing, this doesn't make sense. That the servant of the Lord, as we'll see here in Isaiah 53, is treated harshly, is rejected by men. Who has believed this? The second question is the second part of verse 1. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord, it's representative for God's power. Isaiah, he's essentially asking a rhetorical question here. He knows that once the arm of the Lord has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, not many people are going to respond favorably to it. And he tells us why in verse 2. Why is there a rejection of this servant? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. This is prophecy concerning this servant, concerning the Messiah, that he would come from the most unlikely of places, that he would have very humble beginnings. And isn't this the case? I mean, Jesus, when he was born, he wasn't born in Rome, the center of power at the time. Wasn't born in Greece, the seat of intellectualism and worldly philosophy at the time. He wasn't even born in Jerusalem, where the temple was, the religious power at the time. Instead, he was born in Bethlehem. The term young plant here, it's meant to describe a branch that would typically grow at the base of a tree. And it was really good for nothing. All it would do is siphon off the nutrients 
and the supplements from the main branches in the tree. And so a gardener would come along and he would take these young branches and he would just break them off and he would throw them away. And Isaiah says, this is what the servant of the Lord is gonna be like. Like an unwanted root that sprouts up from the ground. Be considered useless. People won't believe the Messiah's message because they won't believe the messenger himself. Humble beginnings. Not only that, he won't look like a leader. Look at the second part of verse two. This servant, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. If we would have been walking around at the time of Christ, there's nothing about Jesus that would have attracted us to him physically. Charisma, out the window. Charm, not his deal. Style, he was plainly spoken, spent most of his time with the neglected and the those that were seen as least and weak in society. I mean, just think of Jesus. He was a peasant for the most part. Born in a stable in Bethlehem to a, the son of a, an obscure carpenter. And in Jesus, the Bible says the arm of the Lord, the power of God has been revealed and yet no one wanted anything to do with him. Yes, the angels split the skies wide open. And they sang of his praise and the shepherds that they made the announcement to, just a few shepherds went to see this Messiah born, this servant enter into the world. But for the most part, everyone rejected him. Think about it. The servant rejected in his birth, no place for you in the end. Rejected in his life. The religious leaders had him put to death, and by the time they had him put to death, all of the crowd was yelling, crucify. His birth and life, the suffering servant, was one of rejection. And we see this rejection most in the second part of this passage, and that is the crucifixion. So many would not believe in the Messiah because of his upbringing, insignificant, humble beginnings, because of what he looked like, Nothing spectacular about him. Others would not believe because of how he was treated. How could the Lord's servant be described like this? Look at verses three through six. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom mid hid their faces, he was despised. Again, it just goes back into Isaiah 52, verse 13 and 14, marred beyond semblance. It's a picture of the cross and the brutal torture that would take place before the cross. Isaiah says, we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds 
we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, these few verses right here constitute the heart of Isaiah chapter 53. And it really is the heart of the gospel. And like Spurgeon, honestly, just in reading Isaiah chapter 53 and interacting with it in my study time this week, you really do sense a weight when you're reading this passage of scripture, taking it in. You really do sense that it's holy ground in a way. Verse one and two speak of the birth and life of Christ. And verses three through nine speak mainly of his crucifixion, his work on the cross and his death. Allow me to just highlight in verses four through six, if there's a word that I could draw out of these three verses that would encapsulate it, it would be the word substitute. If you take notes, if you write in your Bible, just write out beside verses four through six the word substitution or substitute. At the core of crucifixion is substitution. I'm thinking about and praying right now about the series that we're gonna open the year up with about the third or fourth week in January. And right now, the the working title is something along these lines, uh, these things never change. I realize that Over the course of the last three years, a lot has changed. Uh, COVID changed us. Um, As a church, uh, I'm beginning my third year in January, and there's been change with a new pastor. We've added new ministries, the the residency program, and CF Connect, a ministry to help plant churches and strengthen pastors all over North America. We brought on new staff on our three campuses just in the last 23 months. We brought on 12 new staff members. A lot of change. Here at the Champions Campus, you see the renovations of our campus and uh, we're just doing some upgrading, some renovations and, and so much is changing and I understand that and realize that it's been said that nobody likes change but a baby with a wet diaper. Change is hard. I understand that, but uh, we have to change. It's a part of life. And I'm praying about coming back in January and starting a series, These Things Never Change, and one of the things that I wanna talk about when I talk about these things never change is the core beliefs of our church. Like, we're never gonna change on what we believe about the Bible. It is God's word inspired to us. We're never gonna change Uh, regarding salvation and how we get salvation, that it is by Jesus Christ and him alone. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we're never gonna change on who Jesus is and how we enter into a relationship with him. It's by grace, through faith. Never gonna change on these things. Well, one of the doctrines that we're never gonna change on is a doctrine of salvation and And what we call it is penal substitutionary atonement. I'll put it on the screen for you so you can see it. This is a doctrine that teaches this, and I'm taking this straight out of Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology book, that Christ's death was penal in that he bore a penalty when he died. There is a penalty for sin. Sin requires separation from God. Sin requires Death, there is a penalty. 
And Jesus on the cross paid the penalty for sin. But there's also substitution. His death was also a substitution in that he was a substitute for us when he died. This doctrine is also known as vicarious atonement. A vicar is one who stands as a representation for someone else. Atonement means covering. Vicarious atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement. What this doctrine teaches is that Jesus stood in our place. He took our penalty on. And when he died, our sin was atoned for. It was covered. And this is what you read in Isaiah chapter 53, especially verses 4 through 6. Just look at it one more time in detail. Look at verse 4. Surely, this is a word of exclamation here. There's zero doubt in this. Surely, he has borne our griefs. Our griefs, underline, circle how many times the word our is mentioned right there in your Bible. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Substitution. It's at the very heart of the crucifixion, and we have seen hints of substitution throughout this series. Recall Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve sin against God, and they are shamed. They realize that they are naked, and what does God do? He clothes their shame with a skin of an animal. He kills an animal rather than them. It's substitution. Genesis 22. Abraham and Isaac going up Mount Moriah and he, out uh, of the obedience to God, raises his hand to slay his son Isaac. And what does God do? God sees his faith, stays his hand, and provides a ram in the thicket. And that is a substitute for his son Isaac. Exodus chapter 12. The Passover lamb. The people of Israel are to bring that Passover lamb into their home. And what are they to do with that Passover lamb? They are to slay that Passover lamb and put his blood over the door frames of their home. So when the death angel comes over, he passes over that home. And instead of taking the eldest in the family, what do we have? A substitute in the Passover lamb. We saw it last week in Psalm chapter 23, John chapter 10, over and over and over, four times, what does Jesus say? I am the good shepherd, and immediately follows, I lay down my life for the sheep. It's substitution. Look back, verse four, he's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, that's substitution. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, that's substitution. If you've got the ESV, it says pierced. It's a picture of the, Nails piercing Jesus on the cross. And what's amazing about this is Isaiah is painting this picture again 700 years before the crucifixion. It wasn't even invented at this time. The burden of sin crushed Jesus. See, that should have been me and you. We should have been crushed. It was our sin. We should have been pierced. It was our transgression. We should have drank the cup of the wrath of God. It was our iniquity. But instead, the Bible says, the Lord's servant takes it on. He suffers in our place. One Christian 
writer I read this week said this, this is the heart of the gospel of Jesus, substitution. This is the great message of good news that God has for rebel subjects who are willing to lay down their rebellion. Instead of collapsing in grief over our rejection, he bears our griefs. Instead of increasing our sorrows, he carries our sorrows. Instead of avenging our transgressions, he is pierced for them in our place. Instead of crushing us for our iniquities, he is crushed for them as our substitute. And all the chastisement and whipping that belong to us for our rebellion, he takes on himself in order that we might have peace and be healed. This is indeed holy ground. And this Thanksgiving week that we're just coming out of, if you have any problems with a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving, then you need to come sit and soak in Isaiah chapter 53. He took our sin. He paid the penalty that we should have paid. You know, we put crosses on the top of our churches and we put them in our homes. We wear them around our necks as jewelry and it's beautiful, I get it. The decor, and it means something to us. It ought to mean something to us. Because every time we look at the cross, it should be a reminder. That's where, that was the price we were supposed to pay. And yet Jesus willingly took it on. He said, no one takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down. All because of love. It's the only motivation. God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I don't know what your viewpoint of God is. I don't know what you've been taught growing up. I don't know what's been modeled for you. I don't know what you raised in in the church, churches you grew up in, but I can tell you this. If love is not the overarching theme of who God is, rooted in all that he's done, love, then you've been misled. He loves you. And that's why he went to the cross. And according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's what we call the great exchange that Jesus came to this earth and he went to the cross and he took on our sin and in exchange we got his righteousness. Absolutely amazing. Look at verse seven through nine. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. One of the reasons that we can believe that Jesus is the Lord's servant, that he is the promised Messiah to come, is because of fulfilled prophecy. It's hard not to read Isaiah chapter 53 and see the person and work of Jesus leap off the page, but many people don't get it. 
What did, what did John teach? John chapter 1, verse 11, that Jesus came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. They rejected him. There's some people that can't wrap their mind around God dying on a cross. It doesn't make sense. And yet we see fulfilled prophecy coming off of this page three times in this passage of scripture, verses seven through nine, we we're told that Jesus did not open his mouth when he was led to the slaughter. This is fulfilled prophecy. Matthew chapter 26, verses 62 and 63. Look at what the Bible says. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? Here is the man that was about to lead the rebellion to crucify him. And he says, what is it that these men testify against you? And look at what the scripture says. But Jesus remained silent. Matthew 27, verse 11 through 14. Now Jesus stood before the governor, Pilate, most powerful man in the province of Rome at that time, there in Jerusalem. And the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. But he was accused by the chief priests and the elders. He gave no answer. And then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Read the crucifixion account. Six trials, if you will, a mockery of justice. And not one time, not once, does Jesus defend himself? Not once does Jesus appeal for a new trial? No doubt Peter looked at the crucifixion of Christ as he was reading Psalm 53 and penned this in his letter, 1 Peter 2, verses 22 and 23. He, Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It's fulfilled prophecy. It's fulfilled prophecy, verse eight. He was cut off from the land of the living. Just another way of saying that the innocent lamb of the world died. Cut off from the land of the living. Verse nine, he was buried. Fulfilled prophecy. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Matthew chapter 27, verses 57 through 60. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. And he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate ordered it and gave it to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. Remember our definition of the gospel? The good news is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Right here in Isaiah 53, we see his incarnation, his life, and his ministry. We see his crucifixion, his death. Is there any hint at, res at resurrection? This is the third and final section of the passage, the resurrection there is. Look at verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This is no accident that's taking place, Jesus on the cross. This was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. As John MacArthur wrote in his book on Isaiah 53, the servant's death is God's doing. He's behind it. He has put him to grief. And look at hint number one of the resurrection. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Jesus will see his offspring. Those that put their faith and trust in him, he will see. Why? Because he's alive. He shall prolong his days. Hint number two speaks of eternal life. 
Death can't defeat him. His days will be prolonged. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Hint number three of a resurrection. What did God say? What did Jesus say after the resurrection, before the ascension? All authority has been given to me. God is prospering his hand. ESV notes here that the servant becomes the executor. Hint number four, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Why is he satisfied? Because his work is complete on the cross. He said, it is finished. And now he sits at the right hand of God, satisfied in him by what he's accomplished. Hint number five, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous or justified. Christ rising from the dead, his resurrection proves that he is not only justified, but he is the justifier. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Hint number six, before Christ we were weak, in Christ we are strong, and he will divide a portion with the many. He shares his victory with us. Only happens if he's alive, if there's a resurrection. And then finally, hint number seven, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, that he bore the sin of many, he makes intercession for the transgressors. Only a living, risen Savior makes intercession. And the Bible tells us over and over again, that's exactly what Jesus is doing right now. Romans 8, 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Hebrews 7, 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives. Resurrection to make intercession for them. In this passage of scripture, we have the incarnation, Jesus' birth, his life, We have the crucifixion. We have the resurrection. We have the gospel. The good news. Is it any wonder that after Jesus ascended and his disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit and they go out on mission for him, there's a man by the name of Philip that is led by the Spirit of God to have a conversation with a spiritual seeker from Ethiopia. This man from Ethiopia has come to Jerusalem to worship, to search things out, and somehow he ends up with a scroll, and he's reading this scroll, and God says, I want you to go talk to this man. Acts chapter 8, verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And the man from Ethiopia said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch, the man from Ethiopia, said to Philip, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? Is it about himself or about someone else? Look at what verse 35 says. And Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, 
Isaiah 53, beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. The good news, the gospel, straight from Isaiah 53. The Bible truly is all about Jesus. The question that all of us must answer today is the same question that Isaiah posed in verse 1. Who will believe this? You have to answer this question. Will you receive this message in the messenger? The arm of the Lord has been revealed in the person of Jesus. Will you bow your knee, you bow your heart to him? Will you receive the gift of life named Jesus? Or will you reject him? Will you say, no thanks? Will you you say, I'll pass, maybe tomorrow? Next week, we start the Christmas Spectacular. It's gonna be amazing. A lot of performances already sold out, and I wanna encourage you, if you haven't got your tickets, to go online and do it, and we're we're gonna have a great time celebrating the sights and sounds of Christmas, flying angels, and Santa all over this place, all right? It's gonna be awesome. But at the end of the night, after we have shown the real meaning of Christmas, Christ came to earth as a sacrificial lamb. I'll get up during our performances that are in English. Pastor Ramon will get up during our performances that are in Spanish. And we will clearly articulate this gospel message. And I want to ask you to pray. Pray for me, pray for Pastor Ramon, pray for our cast and crew that are working so hard to get this ready. Pray for the person right now that'll be sitting in the seat that you're sitting in. Because they're gonna hear the gospel just like you're hearing today. And they're gonna have an opportunity just like you have today to receive him or to reject him. And I'm going to say to them, just like I'm saying to you this morning, how do you receive the Lord's servant into your life? Like any gift you receive this time of the year, you take it. John chapter 1, verse 12, the scripture says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, To them he gave the right to become children of God. You believe the incarnation, not just with your head, but with your heart. You believe that Jesus came and he lived a perfect life. You believe that he died a torturous death, the crucifixion. You don't believe just with your mind, but with your heart. And you believe that he was raised from the dead. You believe in the gospel. And when you believe and receive, your life is changed forever. Thank you for joining us online. We hope today's experience encouraged and challenged you. At Champion Forest, we are passionate about all kinds of people coming to know God, to grow in their relationship with Him and others, and then to go out and make a difference in the world. 
We would love the opportunity to talk and pray with you. To connect with us, just go to championforce.org connect. And hey, of course, we can't wait to welcome you on campus in person on one of our locations. We'll see you soon.